Let's, uh, let's start in our study. We're going to turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And you're kind of going to see why we wanted to pick today to pray for our pastors here. Because we come, <laughs> we come to a passage today that I have found a little bit difficult not to prepare. I love studying God's Word, but to, to, to share with you. Uh, and you might be thinking, well, what could you find difficult to share? I mean, I am a little anxious. What could you be a little anxious about? Because what have we not talked about lately, right? We've talked about marriage, sex, singleness, divorce. We've talked about uh, giving up our freedoms uh, uh, to, to help a brother or sister not stumble in sin. What possible thing could we talk about today that I would be a little bit anxious about? Well, today Paul gives in our passage today six reasons why you should pay your pastor. <laughs> So you can understand why, because this is why, invariably, this will be the day, right? You've got someone brand new tuning in from home, someone brand new walking in the door, and there you have it. Martha, I told you, all these guys want is money, right? Every time they get up on the pulpit, they're asking for your money. Um, And so I just wanted to begin by saying, (laughs) I am and my family are well provided for, We are not asking for money. In fact, this passage is not about that. It's not about me. Um, And so I don't even want you to go there. In fact, I never talk about money unless the passage that we come come to talks about it. Well, what have we done? Well, we've started in 1 Corinthians back in April of last year. And so we've, we've been just going right through it systematically, right? Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We had a few breaks Actually, a lot more than a few. I counted up. We had 18 weeks of breaks. We went through Matthew 24. Then we had this kind of merger. So Bill and I were sharing, and I was gone. We had people. So, But we've been in 1 Corinthians for 24 weeks. And last week we were in chapter 8. This week we are in chapter 9. And Paul talks about giving to the pastor. So I'm I just saying, I just preach what the Lord brings to us. And you might be saying, well, then why is Paul talking about that? Have we been talking about money? Well, let me just recap for you. Paul has been answering questions that have been raised by the Corinthians, right? They've written to Paul, and they said, hey, there's an issue. Uh, Isn't it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, right? These mature Christians wrote into him, and they gave him all these reasons as to why they think it's okay, right? We we, we know that uh, we have knowledge. Scripture doesn't, you know, tell us not to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. We know idols aren't anything. Food doesn't ultimately commend us to God. And so these were the mature ones saying, obviously, you know, we can eat the meat, The newer believers, those ones who had just come out of that pagan lifestyle, well, that was hard for them. You know, they, they were, it was difficult because that whole world represented for them, right, everything they were just freed from, and so they didn't really want to have anything to do with it. So Paul introduced a a principle, right, in chapter 8, and the principle is this, yes, you may have freedoms in, in Christ, right? As Christians, you may have freedoms to do something that's not specifically prohibited in Scripture, And you may have that liberty, but he says, don't do it if it's going to harm another believer, right? That was the ultimate kind of point. If it's going to wound them, if it's going to grieve them or cause them to stumble into sin. So yes, we have liberty, but our liberty has limits. And the limit is love. In fact, that's just a good little thing to remember, right? My liberty is limited by love. If you can say that without getting tongue-tied. But that's really what Paul closed with last week in verse 13 of chapter 8. If you want to just take a look at that. He said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Right? So he said, hey, if that's a cause for stumbling, then I'll just become a vegetarian. And some of you might say, well, that's going too far. Right? But Paul just was saying, hey, hypothetically speaking, this, was, this is what I would do. So I stated at the beginning of this whole study of Christian liberty 
that what Paul was going to do is he's going to state the principle in chapter 8. But then in chapter 9, he was going to illustrate it. You remember that? So from chapter 9 to chapter 10, verse 14, Paul is illustrating that principle. You know Paul, he loves to do illustrations, doesn't it? In fact, you're going to see today he has illustrations within his illustrations. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. But then in chapter 10, verse 15, on to the end, chapter 11, verse 1, is when he will apply it. So Paul is taking a lot of time to talk about Christian liberty. It must be pretty important. All right? Now, we'll look today. He's going to talk about, well, he's going to give two illustrations, really. We're not going to see both today. One of the illustrations is from the life of Israel, Old Testament Israel. And then one is really a personal illustration from his own life. The illustration from his own life is what is, uh, chapter 9 is comprised of. Okay? So that's what he's going to give us today. So all of chapter 9 is an illustration from the life of Paul about a liberty that he had a right to, okay? Something that he had a right to, but he gave up that right because he didn't want to risk offending somebody. He only gave us a hypothetical one with the food, right? If food causes someone to stumble, I won't eat it. But now he illustrates with an actual liberty, an actual right, an actual privilege that he chose to not take because he did not want to even chance offending somebody. What was that liberty? What right did he give up? It was the right to be paid by the church. That's what, that's what you'll see here. Very clearly, it was the right to be supported by the church. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, servants of Christ have a right to be paid by those to whom they minister. It's here we're going to find most of the biblical principles on that. So it's a very, very important passage. And Paul gave up that right, yet... Throughout his ministry, what did he do? He supported himself, right, as a tent maker. You know that. He built tents. He had a right to be paid by the churches, but he chose instead to forfeit that right. Why did he do that? Well, you have to think about the birth of the early church. He did not want people to think that this Christianity thing was a, just a new movement by a new man motivated by money. He did not want money to hinder the gospel. So he chose to forfeit his claim. So if you were to title this sermon today, you could, you could title it Six Reasons to Pay the Pastor. You could I haven't. You could title it Supporting the Servants of God. Or you could title it Don't Muzzle Your Ox. <laughs> You'll see why in a minute. It's in the passage. But I've chosen, I've chosen a less maybe hard one, The Privilege of a Pastor. Right? That's kind of a not-so-harsh-sounding <laughs> pay your pastor. The privilege of a pastor, the liberty of the pa- the right of a pastor. So we're going to read our passage today. It's chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Look along with me. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who tends to a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of those things at the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for just the practical principles that Paul is so adept at giving us. We thank you for the passage before us and pray that, Lord, you would just um, help us to see what it is you want us to understand. Lord, give us understanding through your spirit. Lord, we, we need your spirit, the great teacher, the illuminator of truth. Lord, would you grant that to us today? We, we do want knowledge. We do want to understand these things, and we do want to apply them to our lives, Lord, because it's by, by living by your, your word, living by your truth, that we are able to glorify you. So, Lord, uh, work in our hearts today, we pray, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to begin here. Paul's going to begin with these six reasons, basically. Six reasons to support a pastor. And number one, right off the bat, is this. Paul was an apostle. He was an apostle. Look at verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Paul begins by asking four rhetorical questions, right? He loves to ask those questions as well. Now, the first question in the original Greek is, am I not free? The version I just read is, am I not an apostle? If you have a King James or New King James, that's how you see it. Every other version you have says, am I not free as the first question, which I think makes more sense. Because what has he been dealing with with the Christians there the, in the Corinthians, right? Well, we have freedom. So he says, well, if you have freedom, don't, don't I have freedom too? You're a believer, I'm a believer. So you have freedom, I have freedom. Am I not free also? That's what he's saying. Am I not free? Right? So can't I do whatever I want? But maybe even more so because the next question, am I not an apostle? Do you see that? Am I not an apostle? And some in Corinth, as you will see, may have questioned his apostleship. He will battle that a little bit. And I think even a little bit here. So he begins to give them two verifications of his apostleship with those next two questions. So am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Here's the next question. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Why does, why does he bring that up? Well, he wants to verify his apostleship. An apostle had to be appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ personally, by himself. If you look back at the 12 disciples, Jesus chose all 12 of them, did he not? He chose them all. But one went and hung himself. That was Judas, right? But after the resurrection and after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples, now apostles, got together and they chose to elect someone to be a replacement. But they had a requirement for that. You couldn't just pick anybody. There was a requirement. Who could be the new apostle? Normally that was appointed by Jesus. But how do we do that? Jesus isn't here. And this is what they, you, we find it here. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Okay, this is them talking together. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Notice the requirement here. Jesus had already ascended into heaven at this point. So the requirement was that he be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. Now we know Jesus appeared to the disciples. We know he appeared to over 500 people, right? Before he ascended into heaven. So they said, among the people that we had to choose from, it has to be a man who has seen the resurrected Christ. 
And so, of course, Matthias was chosen to replace Jesus. Why? Because he qualified based on that requirement. What about Paul, though? Paul says, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. Well, he wasn't around. How did he see the resurrected Jesus? Well, we know by Scripture that he did see the resurrected Jesus, and on three occasions at least. Let me show them to you. All right, the first time Jesus appeared to Paul was at his conversion. It's in Acts chapter 9. And here it is. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he recounted that testimony many times. We know that was the first time he met the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. The second time the Lord appeared to him was in a night vision. And it was actually concerning the Corinthian believers, funny enough, in Acts 18. In Acts 18, verse 9, it says this. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, something you see. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Do you remember that? This is the establishing of the church in Corinth. And he was a little discouraged, and he says, don't worry, you keep doing what you're doing, because I have people in the city. I have believers. That's the second time. The third time is in Acts 22, verses 17 and 18. He appeared to him while he was praying in the temple in Jerusalem. Happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So Paul qualified as an apostle, did he not? Based on the fact that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. Now, I have to make a note on that. What does that mean? There are no apostles today. I know that offends some people. I'm sorry to say it. There aren't, based on the requirement from Scripture. I know people say they have that title or they confer that title upon themselves or others confer it to them. You are not an apostle according to the requirement given in Scripture. Now, we are all sent ones, absolutely. But the biblical apostle, there are none today. There are none today. Paul was an absolute verified apostle. And that's what he's saying to them, right? Yeah, you're free and I'm free. But guess what? I got one up on you. I'm an apostle. They weren't all apostles, right? He was an apostle. He qualified because he'd seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. But also he gives another verification of his apostleship with the last rhetorical question. Are you not my work in the Lord? What's he saying there? Where do you think you came from? Right? You're the fruit of my labor, he's saying. And he describes it more fully in verse 2. Look, look back at verse 2 in our text. If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You see that? You don't, don't look at the other churches. I mean, maybe I'm not an apostle in their eyes, but doubtless I have to be one in your eyes. Because look at you. You're born again. right? You're bearing the fruit of repentance. You're saved. You're a church. How did that happen? Through Aquila and Priscilla? They were there before Paul, but no, that didn't happen before Paul arrived. When Paul came, he used them as partners in ministry, but that church was born when Paul came. And that's why he says they're the seal of his apostleship. What's a seal? No, it's not the or, or, right? It's a a wax seal that they use in the Old Testament, right, to, to put on containers of merchandise or on letters to say, hey, the contents within this seal, they are genuine. Genuine. I can certify to that. What's under this is guaranteed. So he's saying to the Corinthians, you're a living seal to the proof of my apostleship. So he's merely here establishing the fact that he is an apostle. But what's the point of that? Well, look at verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. So examine is a legal term for investigation or 
inquiring into these things, okay? He's mounting a defense for his actions, which were to forfeit his right to the support from the church. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 4. He's going to list some of those rights to begin with here in verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? We have no right to eat and drink. What's he talking about? I, I got to fast all the time? No. Is he talking about the, the meat sacrificed to idols? Are we going back to that? No. He's talking about merely support. He's talking about food. He's talking about payment. I mean, in fact, you could add, do we not have the right to eat and drink at the expense of the church? Shouldn't they foot the bill, right? Don't, we have, don't I have that right? As an apostle, as one who is free, like you, would I not have the right to at least have my meals covered, is what he's saying. Would that be a fair thing to say? Now, we begin to see Paul's talking about church support. You might be going, well, is he? It's unmistakable as we go on. He absolutely is, because he lists what else he had a right to. Look at verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Now, people take this out of context right now. Paul is not saying, don't I have the right to get married? Absolutely. In fact, we know he was married at one point. He's probably a, a widower here at this time. He's not just talking about, don't I have the right to be married? Absolutely, he, he does. Peter was married. Jesus' brothers were married. That's what he says right here. Peter is Cephas. They were married. But here's the point. All right? Don't I get to take along a believing wife is what he says. Don't I get to take along one? To take along, those three words, one word in the Greek is periago. And it means to carry about in one's company. You see his point here? He's saying, wouldn't I then also have the right to even, in my ministry, take along my wife and have her expenses covered as well? Now that's even beyond apostleship because he mentions the brothers of Jesus who were not apostles. James was the pastor, right? He was the pastor of Jerusalem. Jude, you're right. You think about these guys. They could travel around. They were supported by churches. He's like, but they weren't apostles. They came to faith, but they weren't apostles. So this principle, idea, of even supporting a wife in ministry, supporting her alongside the husband, is a principle that can be applied you can't necessarily apply the apostle. Like, I can't go around, well, I'm an apostle, I, I deserve to get paid. That's reason one. There's five others, so don't worry, we're okay. But the principle of paying enough to even support someone else in ministry is important. The church I came through was very much like this. If you were going to be a full-time pastor, Pastor Chris was adamant that we paid enough that our wives didn't have to work because he understood the importance of having a partner in ministry. Now, let me just tell you, my wife's not even in the room, so I can't embarrass her, right? But I, this made me thinking. I started to think, going, what kind of impact in ministry in Cardiff would I really have had if I had come alone? Like, can you just, can you envision me here without Jody and the kids? Like, I could not do it. In fact, most of you are probably here for Jody, right? She, she, she's the better half, like. Uh, this would be half empty. Maybe more empty. I don't know. Like, look right? I, I cannot tell you how much of a support she is in ministry. She's so involved in so many things. The church is so generous to, to pay us enough that she doesn't have to go get another job. And what Paul is saying is like, wouldn't I have that right as well? Not only to have food and drink for myself, but to take along a believing wife as well, to have support there. And you know what? I see people get the priority wrong all the time. I know people that have the priority wrong, right? People in ministry, they're married to the ministry. They forget about the spouse, right? I know people who are, uh, husband is on one continent and the wife on the other, like. For months and months and months and months and months at a time. And I think the priority is wrong there. Yes, we have to put God first, but that's not ministry. 
It's your relationship with God. Your personal relationship with God. You base your spirituality on that. How am I doing with you, Lord? It's not all, oh, look at all these things I'm doing for you, Lord. Oh, I can't, I gotta neglect my wife and kids because I gotta do things to please the Lord. He doesn't want that. That goes against Scripture. It goes against what He calls us to do in terms of support uh, in, in uh, supporting our families at home. First, it's your relationship with Him. Second, it's to the family. Second, it's to my wife. I don't put ministry above her, right? Second, then it's the ministry. The ministry comes in there. You have to have the right uh, balance here. And Paul would say, I would love, if I had a wife, to take her along with me. And that would be a great thing to do. I would encourage people to do that. I would encourage them to travel. All I mean, when I was first starting in ministry, I was doing all kinds of little short-term missions, you know, a week here, a week there. And Jody had little, little ones at home, so she couldn't come. But she'll even tell you now, like, those were hard days, you know. She was left alone for a week with two toddlers running around, and you just wanted to pull her hair out sometimes, you know. Uh, I'm sure those, those were difficult, but we're coming into the, the years where we get to do much more together. And I'm just telling you, it's so nice, so good. I'm so thankful for that. And that's a principle you can take right here from 1 Corinthians 9. He's, he has the right to even take a wife along with him. And then with a touch of sarcasm, look at what he says in, in verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? <laughs> right? It's okay for Cephas. It's okay for, you know, the brothers of Jesus, right? They can get paid. They can support. They can take their wives. But, but it should be only Barnabas and I that do all the work. You see what he's saying? No. It should apply to all of us. It should apply to all of the workers for the Lord, right? They had as much right to any, as to anyone to get their livelihood from ministry without having to work on the side. But they forfeited that right voluntarily, as you'll see. So really, Paul's first reason for the right to be to support it is the fact that he is an apostle overall. And again, can't apply that today. I couldn't do that. But I could apply all these others. Reason number two is it's normal. It's normal. It's customary. It was just customary to get your livelihood from your ministry. And once again, he gives three illustrations to show that paying a worker is simply normal. It's a normal thing to do. Look at verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense... Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? So look at that first one, whoever goes to war at his own expense, right? Soldiers don't pay for their own food. They don't pay for their own clothing or their own housing or their own arms. The government does. I know, I have a son in the army. We just saw him when we went back to the States, and it was so clearly displayed for us because guess what? The first time we walked into our in-law's house, there was Ryan in full army fatigues, head to toe. He had only those. He had no civilian clothing or belongings whatsoever. He had government-issued clothing, a government-issued rucksack, and nothing else. We said, son, you're going to be here for two weeks. We got a wedding, a wedding rehearsal. We got Christmas. We all, like, well, I guess I'm just wearing these. But no, no. What are you, you going to sleep in your boots? Yeah, nothing else. Don't tell me that. Let's go get you some clothes. So we had to go buy civilian clothes for Ryan, right? Why? Government bought his other stuff. Is that's your, You're going to wear that. When you go on the plane, you wear that. You don't wear your civilian clothes. It's a very simple illustration, isn't it? Soldier doesn't pay for his own things. The government pays him. Who plants a vineyard that does not eat of its fruit? That's the second illustration. What farmer do you know that doesn't make a living from farming? Like, wouldn't that be ridiculous that you know, you'll farm all day long and then you've got to go to work? Right? You get paid. That's ridiculous. A farmer, he's either paid in money by selling the crops, he gets a share of the crop, right? That's, that's the idea there. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops, we're told in 2 Timothy. The first to partake of it. So absolutely, the farmer 
is he makes his living from his livelihood. The third illustration is for shepherds. Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Well, even shepherds get paid, right? That's his idea. It's just a normal, customary thing to do. All workers are paid for their work. It's normal. It's customary. It's expected. So why should it not be true for God's workers as well? That's what he's saying. All right, then the third reason Paul gives us, it's found in verses 8 through 11. Look at verse 8. He says, Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? Well, here's the point. It's also God's law. So not only is he an apostle, and he could demand support, not only because it's a normal customary thing to do, but also it's God's law. It's in his word. Paying workers for their work isn't something determined to be right only in the eyes of man. According to human judgment, it was determined to be right in the eyes of God. Look at verse, verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, that's God's law, the Pentateuch, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? He's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 there. Now why is God talking about muzzling oxen? What's he referring to here? Well, this is an interesting practice. It was an Egyptian practice adopted by the Israelites. But they would take the, grain, the, the, the stalks of wheat, barley, whatever, they would put it on this flat threshing floor area. They'd put an oxen in there. They would tie this big, round, flat stone to him and let him graze around. And what he did is he dragged this thing around all over, all over the wheat, and it would separate the chaff right, from the grain. And it would do it for him. But they, they would let him gra- uh, graze around doing that. They wouldn't muzzle him. They'd let him graze around. So he was, the oxen was earning right, a living Anyway, he was earning his living by walking around and, and all that. So, uh, you know, he, he, he earned it out of his labor. That's the idea here. Don't muzzle an ox. But notice what he uh, says uh, here. He says, um, is it oxen God is concerned about? Is that what he's concerned about? Is that why we have an oxen in that passage? I mean, is that what he's talking about there? Well, no, he's actually talking about a lot more. But does God not care about animals? Look at this, God... Is he not caring about animals here? No, it's not about that. We know in Scripture that he provides the food for the raven. He gives food to the beasts of the earth, right? Even Jesus said, my father feeds the birds of the air. Obviously, it doesn't have to do with that. What's he saying? Is it about the oxen? Is Scripture written for oxen? Well, obviously not. There's not a group of oxen gathered around Scripture today. Look at us going, look at that. It says you shouldn't muzzle an ox, right? I mean, uh, we've been getting ripped off. What's he, his point is very clear, isn't it? It's written for who? People. It's written for human beings. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 25, we don't have time today, you read the whole passage, it's all about social and economic relationships. There's not a mention of animals in the place, except for verse 4. It's just randomly like, don't do this, don't do this, and don't muzzle your ox. It's kind of like, what? what? Well, it was, it was a well-known proverb. People understood the meaning of that, right? It wasn't about oxen. It was all about people. Look at verse 10. He shares that with us. Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Why? That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. Ah, so there you go. So the practice of not muzzling an ox while it worked was a metaphor. You see that? It was a metaphor used to teach humans that they should be paid for their work. Both the plowman and the thresher should work in the hope of receiving reward for their labor. All right, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap material things now this sort of brings it to the the point to a climax doesn't it if men working for men are paid for their work shouldn't men working for god be paid as well i mean we've he says we've sown spiritual things in you eternal things life-giving things 
Would it really be a big deal if we asked for some material things? So Paul is introducing the fact that even Scripture teaches that men should be paid for their work. And that should apply to the servants of the Lord who are working in ministry. In fact, when you think about Paul writing to a young pastor coming into ministry, Timothy, right? Pastor Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says this, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Double honor. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So here he introduces not just the concept that a minister, an elder, should be paid, someone who's ministering in the word and doctrine, but that he should be paid what? Generously. He's worthy of double honor. Now, obviously, people abuse this today, right? They love to take that passage out and go, look, I'm worthy, I'm the man of God, double honor me. I think we have to remember, we've got to exercise discernment in that, right? There's obviously ministries that are not worth giving to. And you've got to exercise discernment there. And I think Paul gives us a hint here. But some of them are obvious, right? They're flying around in their private jets all over the world, living in their giant mansions with their mini cars. Possibly the motivation might be something else. Not so much the people, but probably the money. But Paul says you need to examine the work that they do. Consider the work that they're doing. And what does he say? If we have sown spiritual things. Are they really sowing spiritual things? Is there spiritual things happening in your church? Or does it look spiritual? Does it have the facade of spiritual, right? What's really happening? So Paul is assuming that, that there's genuine spiritual work being done. And if that is happening, then the, the, the worker, he's worthy of his labor. He says double honor. When general, genuine spiritual things are happening in the church, um, I think one of the natural outcomes is a giving, loving, generous church. I've seen it all, all my life. Wonderful to see it happening. Mature church is a church that recognizes that they're just giving back to God what he gave them in the first place, right? None of what we have belongs to us. Would you agree? Like, I, I don't have any of that. We're not for God. So it's a joy just to be able to give that back to him. Now let me just take a moment to show you this principle a little bit further because I think it's important. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because Paul gives a, a pretty amazing example. It's the Macedonians. If you look at verse 1, the Macedonian churches are mentioned. Macedonia was an, a region, so it included churches like Philippi, so the Philippians, right? It included the Bereans, included Thessalonica, so the Thessalonians. It's the region there. And this is what he says about them, okay? Look at verse, look at verse 2. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. See, these churches in Macedonia were poor. And not only did they have poverty, but they were coming out of persecution. So the poor, they're persecuted, but what's in the middle? Abundance of joy. How do you have a church that is abounding in joy in the middle of persecutions and they're poor? And then, right, then out of those things, they abounded in the riches of their liberality. And he says, I bear witness. I saw this, right? They gave according to their ability and, yes, beyond their ability. They had no ability to give, but they gave beyond what they even had or what they could do, freely willing. And not only that, looking, imploring us imploring us. Here's the situation. You had a church that had no money, but they were just so filled with joy because of the spiritual blessings, the spiritual fruit that was sown in them. And they said, we want you to have this. And Paul's saying, I can't take that. You got nothing. No, we want you. This is what's happening. Take it. No, I can't. Take it. No, I can't. Amazing. 
He's using them as an as example to the Corinthians. This is a letter, letter to the Corinthians again, isn't it? So they had this generous spirit. And where did they get that? Verse 5 tells us. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. By the will of God. What is God's will when it comes to giving? Generously. Liberally. And they were doing that. And we know that because, well, don't we have that example in God himself who gave himself for us generously, liberally? You know, we're not just recipients of God's generosity once. He continually gives to us generously. I think of 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything. You've been given everything you need. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Psalm 13, 6, I was going over that during my birthday week, right? I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Just looking back, oh, Lord, you've been so generous to me. Because the Lord has dealt bountifully with us, we're to reflect that generosity. In fact, if you're still in 2 Corinthians, look ahead to verse, chapter 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap what? Bountifully. You see that? God works in the hearts of his people when there's true spiritual, um, spiritual fruit happening in the church. Then the outcome is generosity. And he says, yes, be generous. Be generous. Be liberal in your giving. Don't muzzle an ox. Why? Spiritual things are being sown in them. So Paul has given these reasons so far for support from a church. I'm an apostle. It's the norm. It's also God's law. And these last few we'll get through rather quickly. Fourth one, it's done for others. It's done for others. Verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. We're going to look at that second half at the end. Just focus on the first half. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Who are the others? The Corinthians were supporting others at some point. What others would they have supported? Well, no doubt Apollos, who's the current pastor of the church, right? No doubt Cephas, Peter, had, had spent some time there. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Remember that? I'm of Cephas. But Paul would have had even more right to support from that church because he was the founding pastor of that church, right? He was the spiritual father. All right. But now we come back to that second part of verse uh, 12. We'll do it at the end, okay? I want to go on to... Um, Verse, verse um, point five and verse 13. We'll come back to that in 12 with a second. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? What's his point here? Well, it's the pattern. It's the pattern. It's the pattern in scripture that God has laid out. What's he been saying here? Well, this has always been God's way. That's how the, he supported the priests during, uh, through, the, through the offerings, right? If you think about it, you read through all those, I mean, no, I, that's when you zone out, right? You're just kind of like, uh, offerings. And stuff. But when you read it through, you find out that there's these five different offerings that you could bring to the priest in the tabernacle. You had the burnt offering, and pretty much what, what happens is it's all burnt up. There's not much left for them to take. But they did take the hide, and they sold the hide. They got some livelihood from the hide of that animal. But the, the sin offering and the trespass offering, the second and third offerings, the fat was burned, and the priest kept all the rest of the meat. That was for him. That was his portion. He made his livelihood off of that. The fourth, which is the meal offering, you had flour, wine, and oil. You had a portion that was given to the Lord. The priest kept the rest of that. 
You had the peace offering, and that burned the fat and the entrails, but the, the priest kept that breast and that right shoulder, and there's symbolic you know, things and all that, but they got to, to have all that. And when you continue reading through Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 18, you find out that they got a portion of the tithes, right? They got a portion of the first fruits that were given, um, all, all laid out for them. All that was given so that to set a pattern there, that, that God wanted his, his people in ministry to be supported, to make their livelihood from the service. He established that pattern in scripture so we come to the um sixth reason let me give that to you here jesus commanded it this verse 14 even so the lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel i've seen so many people take this out of context right they just take that one verse and go look you're just supposed to live by the gospel go preach that's your that's your food that's you know you get the gospel but have we not seen it in context is that what paul's saying here is that the argument he's making no his argument is that jesus commands it here what command is he referring to? What command can we find in Scripture? Uh, I don't know that it, it's immediately obvious, but I think the, the, the most obvious one is, is in Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples. They send out two by two to go and minister and to evangelize and all that. And here's what he says in Luke 10, 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. Why? For the laborer is worthy of his wages. So there Jesus says it. So whether... Paul's referring to that specific statement or he's referring to a more fully unrecorded teaching or a special revelation from Jesus. His point is simple, isn't it? Right? Both God's law and God's son have agreed on this. So prophets, pastors, ministers, evangelists, they should be paid for their work. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, well, Jesus commanded it. However, he does not command those who minister to accept the support. And Paul didn't. He, he gave these six reasons, six elaborate reasons, right? He's developed this, why he has a right to be supported by the church. Now go back to verse 12, that middle verse that we skipped, where it starts with nevertheless. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse 15 starts the same way, but I have used none of these things. We'll start there next week. So, Verse 12 says, I, I, I haven't even used that right. I have a right. I give you a bunch of reasons why I have that right, but I haven't used it. Why? Well, I'm enduring things because I don't want to hinder the gospel. That word endure means hold out against, pass over in silence even. It's the idea of bearing up this, bearing without complaining, whatever I need to do to further the gospel. Right? In fact, this is probably the first time he's even mentioned, right? I do have a right. I've never asked for it. I could have said, hey, you need to pay me. I've never done that. I don't want to do that because I don't want to hinder the gospel. What limited his liberty here? What limited the liberty Paul had? Love. He loves these people. He wants to see them saved. He doesn't want them to look at him as a man who just wants money. Isn't it sad so many people, I hear that all the time, like, oh, yeah. Right? They do these fundraising things and, you know, we're, you know, give us money for this and you can't outgive God, which is a true thing. You can't outgive him. And the idea of like, oh, give bountifully and you'll, give, you'll get bountifully, I think it refers to spiritually. I don't think it means, oh, then you'll walk away with, but I've heard of churches that do this, you can't outgive campaign, you can't get, outgive God, and they mean literally, if you give this much, well, God's going to give you that much return. And people were, I, I asked a friend who was involved in that church, I said, did they have a return policy? <laughs> like, what, like, what do you came back and say, well, it's been six months, man, I'm destitute, what's going on, right? He said, well, we don't have a policy, but we did have a couple of people come back. Right? I was like, I think, you're, I think you're going on the wrong track here, right? 
It's the spiritual benefits we get from that. It should delight us to, to give. It should delight us to, be, you know, to have that ability to, to, to do that. And again, I want to say, this has nothing to do with me. I don't want more money. We are more than amply supported from, from church there and from church here. We, we don't need more money. And that's not even Paul's point. He is saying, I have the right to it, but I don't want it. It's a, it's a right I have. It's a liberty I, I could claim, but I don't because I, I just I want to make sure people see Christ. Not some guy who's just up there wanting money. We have to remember that while there are things that we can do that are not wrong in themselves, to kind of go back to kind of what we've been talking about, they become wrong if we carry with it, you know, if, if, we, if we just carry on with it um, to their harm, right? We have to look at the spiritual good of everybody. And that's what Paul was doing, wasn't he? He's like, I want to look to their spiritual good. So I just want to wrap up by saying, let's do this. Let's just try to imitate Paul. Let's limit our liberty for love's sake. That's what he did, right? He had the right to be paid. He had the right to support, but he said, you know, I'm not going to have any of that. And that's what we'll begin to look at next week. He really didn't talk about it. We'll look at verse 15 and on is when he says, here's why I won't take it. But he's made a pretty good point for why he should, right? Right? I have a right to that, but I won't. And the reason is love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the thoroughness of, of Paul, Lord, just um, in, in taking us through all these principles as to why it's right to, to pay people in ministry, to, to, to support them, Lord. They, they work for the Lord in a very specific way, and it's a good thing. But, Lord, really the underlying overall uh, theme here is that, Lord, even that right, Paul wanted to limit because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. Lord, and we, we don't get up here and preach about money and we don't declare, because I, Lord, I just believe that you will, you will, you will meet our needs. You, you will give us exactly what we need to do what you want us to do. And so, Lord, I, I just don't want people to think we're here for, for any of that. We, we just want people to know Christ. And Lord, I just pray that we would just look at ourselves again, that we would just make sure we're, we're not doing anything um, that would take away from that. Individually with, with friends or family members or uh, people we just know, acquaintances, work, whatever it might be, that we would just be about Jesus, Lord. Just continue to work in our hearts, Lord. Paul is going to continue to talk about these things for the next few weeks, uh, Lord, in, in different ways and in, from different angles. But we're just grateful to you today that your word is true, your word is sound, and we can, we can look at these and find these wonderful, amazing principles, Lord. Even the principles for, Lord, what, 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 what would we do in a time when we are really financially, you know, uh, blossoming and we could pay another pastor or pay a, a person to go into the mission field? What an amazing privilege that would be. Oh, Lord, we would be able to use these principles to say, let's make sure they're supported, that they know they're loved, their needs are met. What a great, great opportunity. Lord, just pray that we remember these principles we talked about today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll come back up after that.